You're listening to the BSC News Podcast, the leader in decentralized finance on the Binance Smart Chain. Here's your host, Ben Antes. I'm joined today with Steven. He is the co-founder and CEO of the development team of Terexa, which is an emerging blockchain focused on data, which is going to be a little different than I think most people are used to in this DeFi space, you know, focusing on these broad focused, you know, DeFi smart contract applications. And first, Stephen, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Ben. Yeah, it's great to have you on. I uh, did a little research ahead of time and, you know, was working on wrapping my head around Teraxa and its goal and purposes. And I think you are going to be the right person to explain what's going on. So I appreciate you taking the time to do this. And I think it's going to open up, especially for our listeners, a new area of the cryptocurrency space that not a lot of people are talking about yet, but it doesn't mean they won't be talking about it soon. And it's it's involving data and information. And so I think to get started, why don't you start with the simplest, highest level explanation of Terexa? <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. Um uh, I think I think what we're doing is really um, really uh, you know really actually fits with a lot of the mega trends that we see today. So Teraxa really wants to make informal transactions and interactions useful by making them trustworthy, right? So most of the world's data, you know, according to IDC, ninety nine percent of the data is really wasted, and the reason why they're wasted is because people don't trust them, right? You can't use data that you don't trust. And this includes data generated by machines, by people, and it's, you know, it's generated by businesses and normal people in social contexts every single day. So, um, and, you know, we built, we have, we have actually built applications that involves uh, machine generated data, um, you know, data generated by people. And we're currently building applications on social listening to identify, you know, emerging trends and assets uh, to quantify marketing campaigns, to tokenize social influence. Um, and to, in general, really try to insert quantifiable and verifiable signals uh, into uh, crypto assets, right? Um, I think in the beginning, uh, let me just sort of make a link between what's currently super hot right now and what we're doing, is that if you're really taking a close look at all the assets that we're trading, right? There's a lot of stuff on DeFi, there's a lot of stuff in trading in general. Um, All the assets that we have um, are not really backed by any sort of quantifiable signal, right? So if you look at in the physical world, right, we have things like stocks, right? Um, and they're, by, they're backed by signals, right? Signals like revenue, right? Signals like assets, uh, signals like the business, uh, the business contracts they actually sign with it. So these are quantifiable signals that are audited and reviewed, and they are backing this asset. Now, that doesn't say the asset doesn't have a very large speculative component to it, but what makes crypto today I think still sort of in its nascent stages is that it's a hundred percent speculative, right? It doesn't really have any data that actually connects it to the real world, right? Quantifiable, verifiable data. And I think one of the things that could make a connection between, I think um, what your listeners might hear most of the time and what we're doing, um, if, if they take only one thing from this is that we are providing that signal that can be the basis that underlines these uh, crypto assets. And I think that's the next phase. That's the next phase evolution 
um, for uh, uh, in in the crypto world. Yeah. Okay, that that last part there makes a lot of sense to me. So especially comparing it to you know, so the Amazon share price is the underlying revenues, profits, assets owned by the company you know, debts, whatever. Right. And then you add in the the speculative where we think this is going part, but the speculative part is really still based on the first half of the equation, which is, right. you know, revenues, growth rates, whatever. Uh, with crypto, and, and I'm sure you've experienced this, you know, the biggest, <laughs> um, let's say, counter argument to something like Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever has always been like, this is, you know, the value is based in nothing. The value is based in just whatever the next schmuck is going to give you, right, <laughs> on the exchange. And to me, or I think to people more tapped in, the, uh, you know, while you're right, there's no contracts, there's no assets underlying the price necessarily. But what there is is adoption curves. There's regulatory victories, right, or regulatory losses, right. Um, so, you know, how many users are coming on? How, what's the sentiment socially? All these different things are, you know, because we're talking about like a network rather than a yeah. company. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, the valuation is different. And I, and I think I see your point where, well, imagine you can assign a value to those fundamentals that are kind of free thinking fundamentals, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think what's what's really and this is something that I think only really is possible um, on blockchain networks. <clears throat> you know, um, there's nothing wrong with having speculative assets, and there's nothing wrong with having assets that are loosely tied, right? Uh, just sort of in in the way that people think about things, loosely tied with uh, with these signals. I mean, in fact, a, you know, a stock is technically speaking loosely tied to the signals that we were talking about, right? They're not. It's not like there's an algorithm that like you no know, that drives them together. But I think in blockchain, there is, there is an opportunity, right? To actually have an asset partially algorithmically tied to quantifiable signals. That cannot be done in the stock market because who, you know, who, who's gonna be the guy that ties that signal? That is massive, massive opportunity for, for tampering, right? Um, and, uh, and, but in blockchain, for example, I mean, one of the things that we're very interested in um, is identifying emerging trends and also more importantly, identifying uh, the people um, who are creating those trends, right? People who are evangelizing those trends. So in interestingly, I think what we can do is that we can actually create quantifiable measures for social influence, right? If you're an influencer, I can actually measure how much influence you're having on specific communities around specific topics. And those measures can actually be tied into some characteristic of the token, right? Of an asset, right? For I mean, this is just spitballing here, right? Um, for example, right? If there, you have an influencer out there that is consistently identifying emerging trends that later on blow up, right? So this guy is the guy to follow and his influence is obviously very, very good. So whenever that happens, whenever others follow what he is sort of advocating, uh, what you can do is that, for example, you could start deflating the supply of a specific token tied to as influence, right? Increasing each token's value. And another example would be like, say that, you know, an influencer starts endorsing something, right? He goes out and say, I put my name on this. I put my name on that. Well, the more he does that, the more he is spending 
his influence, right? The more he is sort of spending down his reputation. So maybe whenever he endorses something, that signal can trigger something else, which inflates the quantity, the supply of the token, right? Because the more he endorses, the more he inflates. And if you're an influencer who likes to just endorse everything under the sun, then your endorsements and your influence eventually become meaningless, right? And that needs to be reflected in the value which inflates to infinity, right? So this is just one very simple example that shows you the power of having a quantifiable signal directly tied into some characteristic of a tokenized asset. Uh, and of course, people are free still to speculate on it. But now you actually have a set of signals tied into it that I think makes this type of asset much more, um, uh, much more grounded right, in reality. And, um, and overall, the volatility, I think, would go down as well, which is what a lot of people want in the space, right? I mean, what makes a lot of, I think, mainstream, normal, every, everyday people super worried about crypto is that it's so volatile, right? It's way too volatile, I think, for, for, for wide adoption, right? So I, I think this is, this is very, very interesting. And, um, and that's, like I said, that's just one example of what you can potentially do. And I'm even thinking, you know, we could look at the influence of CNBC, of Forbes, you know, on the greater market, right? Because there's almost like a joke that like the bottom's in when Forbes, you know, says crypto's dead or something, right? That's kind of yeah. like an ongoing joke for years or CNBC or whenever mainstream media is putting, trying to put the dagger in the coffin. Exactly, right? And then you say like, hey, these guys are like almost always wrong, <laughs> you know? So yeah. let's stop listening to them. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I, I like this idea. And like, to your point too, about the, the stock part, I think I was actually looking at PE ratios in the stock market yesterday yeah. and tes Tesla was at like 300. Yeah. So, um, you know, and I guess something I'm even curious about if on, on the stock side is, you know, I imagine this, you know, cause that's, that's an asset and, you know, where's this info coming? Like, why, why is this PE ratio 300? You know, why, why is the company worth $300 on every dollar earned? Right. Yeah. And it, to me, that sounds insane, but maybe there is something there and I just have no idea what it is and I need information. Right. That's, that's the point yeah. here is we need information. And, you know, if you, if we just follow Twitter or uh, even mainstream media articles, whatever, it's like, the information is not sourced. It's chopped up. We don't really know what's going on, you know? And so it just goes back to like the fundamentals of needing reliable data-driven information, which yeah. and uh, I this think, world I is think, lacking at the moment. Exactly. I think exact. So I think you actually pointed out another very interesting aspect of it is that that information is not transparent, right? I mean, if you're looking at a stock market, um, uh, you know, who are the people that are doing most of the trades, right? I mean, these are large institutional companies like banks and funds. They're, they have internal people building models that sort of are based on whatever, you know, quantifiable measures that they're based on. But none of that information is really public, right? I mean, how, how is this valued? Who, how do you know, right? Like for a normal person, there's really no way for you to even see that, that kind of information. This is why retail investors always end up getting the short end of the stick here, right? Because they're the last one to know about what's actually happening. So if you're able to say, take those signals and make them publicly transparent, like this is, 
this is the signal, or these are the three or four set of signals that are directly tied to this asset, right? And this is what people are making their decision on in addition to the speculative aspect of it, right? So making it transparent makes it more accessible. And in, in essence, it protects retail investors and invites wider participation, right? Um, today, what we have in the traditional market, you know, it's completely less transparency. Who knows why things go up or down? Who knows which bank decided, you know, you know, to, to do X and manipulate the market? And, <laughs> and they're never punished for it, right? So. Yeah. And I want to take us into a topic that we talked about before we started recording, which sure. was real estate, because I think now that we've even talked further about it, my my mindset and the capabilities here have shifted. And we touched on uh, the Zillow debacle, which was a part of their company was purchasing homes to flip based on an algorithm, which was in turn inflating neighborhood prices, which was then ultimately the the me and you home buyers, the one that's <laughs> buying overpriced homes because we're like, oh, look at the Z estimate. This is legitimate. Um, Something that I'm thinking here is into your point of like, what, are, you know, the big traders of stocks. And so if we could have a feed of, well, who's the big buyers of homes, right? Which, yeah. uh, you know, if you want to figure out which homes Zillow was purchasing or Fundrise or BlackRock or whatever, like, what are you going to do at the, at this moment, other than like, go dig into real estate records, right? Which no one's going to do. So yeah. you're kind of, you're participating, even though you're buying a home, you're participating in, in an investment market that you have no clue what's going on. Like, let's just exactly. be honest. Yeah. Uh, so if we were to look at, okay, well, here's the Z estimate. Now let me pull up this information of who the home buyers in the neighborhood are, right? Oh, it looks like uh, BlackRock just bought this neighborhood. I don't want to get involved. They just push the price up, right? <laughs> like that's um, that's incredibly powerful for just making a good decision on an investment that you don't get to turn around and sell tomorrow and say, oops, right? You're, you're pretty much yeah. stuck with it. Exactly. I mean, I think one of the, you know, what we're, you know, we're building in addition to the, to the machine data and, uh, and, uh, and sort of the informal contractual applications where we built before, um, you know, we're focusing our attention on a social listening platform. Uh, and that's something that we're going to be building today. Um, and uh, we're going to be releasing soon. And one of the things that we're very interested in, one of the use cases we're very interested in is this idea of identifying emerging trends. Whatever trend that you might be interested in, let's try to identify keywords and monitor how these trends are trend, how these trends are evolving, right? Um, and the case that you specifically mentioned, someone somewhere must be talking about this on social networks. <laughs> you know, um, it, it must, it must be somewhere. Now, why is that not sort of more widely available until, I mean, the, the, the time when most of us found out about this is when it blew up, right? It started getting coverage yes. everywhere in national news. The whole thing blew up. And finally, we knew, wow, these guys actually had a large hand in inflating prices and basically screwing a lot of people over, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and so someone somewhere must be talking about this, right? And on social networks, it's only after the fact that people started seeing Oh, you know, there were lots of evidence, right? People were talking about these crazy prices they're getting, you know, offered from uh, Zillow and from all these uh, from, from from all these places. Um, so, what's different about what we're building? Well, you know, in addition to the fact that 
we're building a platform in which data collection analysis is decentralized open source, so it makes it trustworthy. There are inherent incentives, right? As in crypto, there are crypto incentives built in because people can actually tokenize these trends, right? And they can trade on them, right? So this is the idea that if you actually give financial incentives to these things, then all kinds of emerging trends that small groups of people might know about will reach a much larger scope of people. Because as soon as these things start getting traded, uh, as soon as people are incentivized to make money by surfacing these signals and tokenizing these signals, a lot more people will know about them, right? So you would you know, really minimize the, uh, the chances of you know, the, the, the average person really getting screwed over by, by just not having the right information, right? So we're, you're, what you're talking about here is tokenizing social and trading signals. Yeah, we're to- you can tokenize trends, right? So yeah. um, that's, I mean, I think we've seen that in prediction markets as well. Like, you know, what is going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so, uh, so I think in, a, in, in, in addition to making like things like sports predictions, um, I think we go one step further and to say, what are some trends and ideas that you think are going to blow up, right? I mean, you can bet on that, right? And the more people bet on those things um, and uh, the more sort of these, uh, trends that people should be knowing about will surface and become transparent. Yeah, yeah that's super interesting because really whenever you financially incentivize something, it gives it legs, right? That's yeah. that's kind of like the concept here. So it's like tokenizing not only the information, but the influence of the information. Exactly. Yeah. That's pretty nutty. <laughs> and this is what I love about crypto is, you know, I didn't really think about the tokenization of influence until I talked to you. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there was um, we were we were observing starting actually this was even many years ago. Starting twenty nineteen, we started hearing about social tokens, right? And um, and the idea of social token was great. I mean, it's you know it allows fans to partake in the upside of the influencers that they support when the influencer was a nobody, right? So it allows them to participate in the upside and allows these smaller influencers to really bootstrap um, uh, their uh, their their social following, the work they're content producing, the work that they're doing um, when they're so small. So it's a great idea, but it doesn't, hasn't really caught on, right? And, and we, we, we did a lot of, you know, you know, analysis, we did a lot of research, we talked to a lot of people. And I think there's a very simple reason why it hasn't caught on is that it, 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 there's, there's nothing underlying these tokens, right? It's as if I come to you today and say, hey, Ben, you wanna buy a Steven token? It's awesome because Steven, I'm Steven, I'm awesome. You should buy some. <laughs> Your first reaction is, what? <laughs> Why should I do that, <laughs> right? Like it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? So um, so I think, I think that's just an example of like, I think if you had been able to quantify and verify someone's influence and make that a part of the asset, it would have been so much more, um, you know, powerful. Right. Then people are saying, oh, I can see why this thing potentially has value because there are these signals from the real world that are underlying. Right. And you I can know, see it very clearly. So I, I'm kind of one of those believers that like typically capitalism meets altruism in a sense. Right. Because like if you run a business, you want to provide the long, if you want a long-term business, you want to provide the most ethical, you know, profitable business you can, because that's, what's going to grow your business. Right. 
what this does is it almost brings that to the influencer market. Cause if you know, like, okay, I'm, I would say I'm an influencer and I tweet out tokens and picks and things, which I don't do um, because I talk to people all the time. So it's like, that's just not an area I want to get involved in, but let's say I did. And let's say my scheme was actually just to get paid for pump and dumps. Right. Right. Uh, I'm probably going to think twice if there's a social signal tracking the uh, effectiveness of my picks and the profitability right. of my picks. And it almost begins to force, like, I, I can't get away with it. Right. Yeah. Like it's going to be pretty clear when my, to- when the Ben token completely dumps that uh, I'm not a very worthwhile uh, person here. Exactly. Right. I mean, look what, uh, you know, what influencers are doing today, they delete tweets. Mm-hmm. Um, they delete their posts, right? They can do that. Um, and no one's holding them accountable. And the market as a whole has a very short memory, right? Yes. So people forget about things very quickly. Um, you don't see their track records of these influencers. You only really see what they're doing today and how many followers they are. You don't know what they've done in the past. It's very, very hard to know. So the entire sort of influencer infrastructure that we have today is very curated and very censored, right? Um and we need to hold people accountable, like you said. I mean, they're look. I mean, why are you know? I don't like I don't like the way that things are going in the regulatory space today. But why are they going that way? Because of these bad actors, right? That that are that are pumping and dumping and and scamming people. And we we as a space ourselves, we need to figure out ways to identify them, hold them accountable. Because if we don't, you know, the hammer is going to come somewhere somewhere else, and that's going to be a lot worse. Right. Much bigger hammer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is a fact. <laughs> no, that's a, a super cool idea. And really what, so what the Teraxa blockchain, you know, this is that one example, and this is what you guys are working on now. Yeah. What it sounds to me is uh, in general, like if we look at broad scope of the goal here, it's about to almost provide this everywhere, right? Of yeah, where yeah. can you build trust in markets basically? Exactly. Trusting markets, trusting business, trusting just everyday interactions. I mean, we actually started out with very, very specific niche use cases, uh, <laughs> very specific use cases. I mean, we, we started out by looking at a asset leasing business where this, you know, Japanese uh, company were leasing uh, uh, arcade machines. Very interesting. And they were running this, this, this crazy problem in which they were operating on a profit sharing model because that was the quickest way for them to make back their capital. And, um, and you know, if I were the leasing company and I lease something to you and you're, you know, like a store, so a, re- a retailer, you lease five machines and put in the store. At the end of the month, how would I know how much the machine has earned? I mean, that's a big problem, right? I mean, so you, you would have to tell me, but would you tell me the truth? <laughs> you know, if you earn a thousand bucks, would you tell me I earned 500? And then how would I know, right? So um, let's say that I decided that, hey, I don't, this sounds risky. Let me start installing some sensors into the machine that tells me how much it's earning. You'd be unhappy, right? Because you're like, how do I know you're getting the, from the sensors? How, who made these sensors? How do I know you didn't mess with the data? Why is it that my number's wrong, your number's right? Right? Yeah. It's a very, very interesting problem, right? And they were getting uh, really hamstrung by this problem. So what we did was very simple. And we made a piece of secure hardware, tamper-proof, uh, as, as, you know, the secret key storing secure elements. 
the business logic is locking to a write once uh, microcontroller. Um, and it was reporting data to a centralized server like usual, but every once in a while, every six hours, it would hash all the data that it created and it collected, sign it and put it onto the blockchain. And that was it, that's all it did. So what we effectively we did is that we create an audit lock of the data. We can guarantee data's provenance. The data definitely absolutely came from this machine and nowhere else because it has a signature. We can definitely guarantee immutability. This data after it was collected, it was not tampered with because you can match the data you're seeing you know, on these reports with the hashes on the blockchain. So this closes that trust gap between the leasing company and the customer, uh, as well as between any intermediaries in the middle. Everyone's getting paid however much they're supposed to be getting paid. And by making this data trustworthy, we've actually created way more value than just, and this is something that we've actually discovered through, through the work that we did, it's, and it's, 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 it's absolutely astounding. Um, we've created way more value than just beyond the lead, the lesser and the, and, and, and the lessee relationship. The companies that are actually leasing these machines, they're large retailers, right? With multi-layer management. And they're running into a lot of problems. Number one, they don't trust their own data, right? All the data that get collected from the machines and how much these machines are earning, um, the management always finds very strange patterns in this data that are not explainable. And, as a result, they start suspecting their workforce. Mm -hmm. Are you guys stealing money? You just got me no thinking proof. there. Yeah, right? like every P point of sale system could be locked into the blockchain. So the exactly. owner could be in another country and seeing in potentially real time what's going on on their point of sale system. Exactly, right? I mean, the, the, the thing about trust is that it's this invisible concept, like, you know, this company and many other companies, they're spending a lot of money and time to enforce trust and it is limiting their growth, right? If you don't trust your workforce, how are you gonna grow fast, right? And you're gonna hire more people to sort of guard them and double check them, right? And, um, and so when, when you start just cutting at one piece of data, like this machine generated data, you start finding that once you solve the trust problem for that data stream, you just solved like 10 additional problems you didn't even know existed. And they didn't even know existed a lot of times, right? Only when they start thinking about it, they say, oh, wow, if this data was trustworthy, wow, this makes, you know, this makes everything different, right? <laughs> so so this, is, this is one example of, of, of something that we're doing. And it really, I think, showcases, um, number one, how invisible the idea of trust and the cost of trust is. And number two, how wide ranging the impact is. And, I mean, they're sitting on all this data that's just going to waste, right? And another, another critical thing that they weren't doing and, you know, was, was this idea of, uh, you know, how do you minimize downtime for your, for your machines, right? These, these machines would be broken over the weekend and, uh, and they wouldn't know about it because they don't trust the data, right? And then the machine sits there and not earning money, <laughs> you know, for like five days when it could be raking it in, right? Because the, the proper people weren't really notified. And this is just like just a wide range of different sort of um, uh, problems that you could be solving just by making the data trustworthy. The data is there. It's always been there. It's just that people didn't use it because it wasn't trustworthy. Yeah. And potentially like data just goes uncollected completely. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You know, this got me thinking about, uh, let's say like 
the automobile market. You know how when you go to buy a car, you've got a yeah, you got your price. Yeah. You're gonna tell your sales guy, no, nah, I don't want to spend that much. You're like, oh, let me go talk to the manager and see what we can do, right? That whole shtick. Um, you know, imagine if you went in and you're just like, hey, look, I know that this car is sold for this price four thousand yeah. times in the last month. So that's yeah. the price I'm going to give you, right? That's because uh, we have no idea what the if you think about it, isn't it pretty weird that a dealership will sell you and me identical cars for different prices an hour apart, depending on which one of us decides to haggle harder with them? Yeah, price discrimination. That's the that's the uh, yeah, that's how a lot of people make their I mean it's a revenue management for airplane tickets too, right? Like, you know, just because you and I bought it like five minutes apart, I paid double your price. I mean, it's 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 pretty it's pretty crazy. I mean. Yeah, it's all about making information more transparent. I mean, I think in automotive, um, we were working with a very large automaker in Japan, and one of the use cases that we proposed, they, you know, it's it's on the back burner. But I, I thought this is something that is hugely interesting. Is that when I go and you know, specific when I go buy a used car, right? Most cars sold are used cars, right? Secondhand, thirdhand cars. The things that I really care about, um, in from a risk perspective, is um, is mileage and whether or not how many uh, whether or not spending any major assets right i mean that's really what i what i really care about if those two things are sort of known then then there's a lot of data around sort of how much this car is supposed to be worth right and i can you know keep my risk to a minimum so right now i think the way people find that out is you know i think in the u.s different markets have different things but in the u.s people pay for like a carfax report right it costs like a hundred bucks um, and, uh, and that report is not even very accurate. It's actually based on self-reported data. Well, yeah. Like if something broke and I knew how to fix it, why would I yeah. report that when I try to go sell the car later? Right? Exactly. Right. And then if you and I get into an accident, I would be like, Hey man, let's just settle this, you know, you know, yeah, here's some cash personally. So yeah. we don't get, we don't get this record in the insurance that, that hurts our chances of our cars being sold later on. Right. I mean, that happens all the time. So there's really no guarantee. So what we proposed um, was that, hey, why, you know, data, like, like um, cars today are like fully digitized. They've been digitized for years and years. All this data is being collected. So all we need to do is put a similar sensor that we had before, in, you know, that we put in our key machine into the car, right? And I would just collect two types of data. One, car, one type of data is odometer, right? The other type of data is accelerometer, right? The odometer tells you mileage. The accelerometer measures sudden changes in acceleration, which is what happens in collisions, right? And so it's very clear when collisions happen. And that kind of data, what I would do is I would anchor periodically their hashes into the blockchain, right? And um, and later on, you know, of course, we also talk about data ownership. That you know, if you own the car, you should own that data as well. So if I were to sell you a car, I can tell you, hey, you know, I will authorize you to to look at the data. And then you can also check against the blockchain to make sure I didn't make it up, right? Yeah. Um, it, it was it's correct signatures, correct hashes, everything correct. We don't need Carfax, right? We don't even need a dealer. It's just going to be you and me doing a deal. And you don't have to trust me. You don't even have to know me. All you need to do is know that the data is trustworthy, right? And that that's great. You know, you don't have to haggle. You don't have to deal with these shady dealers with their, you know, weird deals or whatever. <laughs> you know, you're just dealing with another person or another manufacturer, whoever. Uh, when data is trustworthy, things are just simple, right? 
But I, I would almost think you could push that concept further, not to give you guys any more ideas, but, uh, you know, my car will collect info on if I have a low tire, right? Yeah. So it's like, what if you came to buy my car and you're like, well, I don't know, Ben drove this car for 16 months straight with low tire sensors yelling at him. I don't yeah. think he probably took very good care of it, right? Yeah. Or, or it could tell you how long was it overdue for oil changes because the cars already have all this info. You know, it it tells me when I'm due for an oil change. It doesn't mean I'll do it that day. I might wait a week or two weeks or whatever. Uh, You'd probably want to know that if you're trying to buy it from me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, there there would be like, um, you know, there there would be third party companies that would emerge to analyze that data too, right? And they would, you know, you can get like a few reports and and they will analyze that data and uh, and you can see that you can, there's a lot of things you can start doing. Um, and bypassing these uh, uh, these middlemen and just be purely data driven, right? And it would drastically lower the cost of these transactions, yeah, and and make them a lot more transparent and fair. You know, thinking about it, if if this device was made that could just the the automobile owner could opt in and plug it in, you know, that could transmit data that potentially manufacturers don't want you to know, like how frequently <laughs> does this model have certain issues, right? Yeah. Because yeah. then you could decide I'm not buying that car at all. Yeah. Right. So it could this could be a a kind of a concept driven, but almost more by users than by manufacturers. Yeah. The manufacturers uh, do need to sort of. Uh, I think we're talking a lot about the specific concept. The manufacturers yeah. do need to um, be a part of the loop because they're the ones that are making it. So they're the ones who I think need to basically um uh insert these uh these type of devices into the car and i think it needs to be in all cars right if it's just in a few cars you don't really have enough data to make that make mm-hmm. make sort of a big impact and from our conversations um the manufacturers actually have a big interest in this they you mm-hmm. know it's actually you know like you said they might not want to reveal everything right because it might be bad for them but the incentive for them to actually participate in this kind of thing is actually much bigger because Traditionally, as a car manufacturer, they feel like, you know, from an upside perspective, they're not really participating in any of the upside after the car exits the factory, right? All this crazy stuff about ride sharing, you know, financing, all this other like crazy stuff that's happening, um, they're not getting a piece of it. Mm -hmm. So they're not getting the upside. But guess what? They're getting all the downside. Right. <laughs> if, if a car breaks, guess who people go to? Right. They go to, you know, they don't go to Uber. You know, they don't, you know, they, they don't, they don't go to the dealer. They go to like straight, they, they go to the manufacturer. And it's the manufacturer CEO gets dragged before Congress for anything that happens. So they get none of the upside and all the downside. Right. And, uh, and they're sort of fed up with it. Right. They're like, we, you know, what, if we're going to get all the downside, I want a piece of that. <laughs> I want a piece of the action. And in order to really make sure that they participate in some of the downstream markets, um, it has to be data-driven. Because once the car leaves the factory floor, they are not touching it anymore. So they have to have some way to actually connect them to the end users that actually come later. And that's going to be driven by data. And it's going to be driven, I think, largely by data that people can trust, right? Because if a centralized data repository, then people have problems with that too. Right. So it's going to be and you have privacy issues and all kinds of stuff. I mean, they've been doing studies on this for decades, <clears throat> thinking about how they can get into the downstream market. Um, so they have a big incentive actually to get in. Anyway, this is going to details, but 
you know, this is actually one example where you can actually use the natural economic incentives and industry dynamic to actually push through some interesting ideas. Yeah. yeah, and I think, you know, even though we really got into the details on this one example, it does illustrate how this, you know, how many industries this could, this similar concept in a different way could apply. And it, it yeah. gets people thinking like, okay, this could apply to, you know, basically any electronic, right? Yes. Like yeah. computers, I phones, whatever. It's like collecting all this data. Obviously, phones probably already do that extremely well, but, um, but they're not yours. Well, no, it's, no. It's, it's not my data, that's for sure. <laughs> um, so I want to push us into uh, to kind of do a final topic here and the blockchain itself. And is there anything that would say separates? Your from this blockchain, the Terexa blockchain, from Bitcoin or Ethereum or Solana, and I and my first hunch, it's got to be transaction volume and speed, right? Because if you're talking about data, well, those there's a lot more data points than there are assets, right? Yeah. So I, I would yeah. imagine that sheer volume is is a focus here. Yeah. So there, that that I mean that is an excellent question because um, I think that's a question that everyone who's building their own blockchain layer needs to ask well before they start building, it, right? Um, the, there, there, I, I, you know, let me, let me, uh, let me answer your immediate question. So, uh, we did design Terrasa to be a high throughput, um, blockchain. Um, so in the, um, in our internal experiments, um, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing a, uh, you know, 5,000 TPS with a sub-second, uh, transaction inclusion latency. Um, and then we can get to a three-second finalization latency. Um, we do have a roadmap that can get us to somewhere around 50,000 TPS. So it is going to be very high performing. Um, and obviously, because it's proof of stake, uh, it's not going to be as costly to use, not even close, right, compared to Ethereum and Bitcoin. Now, the other thing I really want to point out is no matter how fast your blockchain is, it's not infinitely fast. Nobody's blockchain is infinite. That's just impossible, right? So, um, so I well, we actually started out. The reason why we actually started out building our own blockchain back in, we made this decision back in 2018, uh, was that blockchain technology is still very nascent, right? There isn't like sort of a standardization, like it's so mature that it's standard, right? Like I still. This example I, I keep using is that back when <clears throat> I got my first computer in like 1992, I remember turning it on and you know when you start running sort of network applications, it would ask you like, which TCP IP stack would you like to use, right? I mean, that's crazy if you ask that question today. Like, why do I care about that? Like, that's just the standard. You know, every application comes with a standard TCP IP stack. Why, why, I don't care about that. But back then when it was just starting, everyone built their own, right? Because the reason why they built their own is because they needed to adapt the protocol to the application's needs, right? They, it, it, they needed to do that. And it, was, and it was a very emerging technology back then. We've seen similar examples in the blockchain space where application, pure play application creators or teams get severely bottlenecked by the fact that they found some limitation um, in the infrastructure that they're building on top of and they didn't have the expertise or the influence to actually uh, change or to make the necessary changes to optimize your application, right? So this is purely because we think that, you know, the blockchain infrastructure layer is not mature. So we as a team building these applications need to have the flexibility and the confidence to really adapt the underlying infrastructure for our applications uses. Now, 
this is all very abstract, right? What, what, what does this mean, right? What does any of this mean? Well, you know, let's take a few examples here, right? Um, a lot of the applications that we're actually driving are what we call data anchoring applications in which we're storing essentially a, um, uh, like an audit trail, right? We're storing hashes and, um, and signatures. We're not running fancy logic on the blockchain. Uh, we're just storing things on there. So later on, people can retrieve it. <laughs> so it's a very high volume, but sort of simple logic uh, kind of an operation. Um, what makes it also very interesting is that it's a stateless transaction, right? It's a transaction that doesn't have any impact on future transactions, and it's not impacted by any past transactions. So stateless transactions have this very interesting property in that you can actually very optimistically execute them in parallel. It's called optimistic concurrency um, without having to worry about conflicts. So even before these transactions are finalized, um, you're actually able to um, you, you're, you're actually able to just, just execute them without having to worry about conflicts. So like that's something that's very, very the, unique about, sorry, yeah. I was going to say, just jump in and say, to, I have a thing to the commoner brain here, there's, there's no double spend problem. Exactly, right? There's yeah. no Because all you're doing is saying we're adding another entry. And that entry has nothing to do with the previous one or the one that comes after. Mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's, it's very interesting. So, um, so that's, uh, that, that's, that's one thing that's very specific to our, uh, to our application that can be hugely optimized by changes in the infrastructure. Now, if I were building on top of, you know, not, not to say these other ledgers are not good, right? But if I'm building off of Ethereum or Avalanche or Solana or whatever, and I go to their team and say, hey, can you make a change in your ledger that optimizes this? They're not gonna listen to me. They're gonna be like, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's just, why don't you do it yourself or something? <laughs> you know, hey. they're not going to listen to me, right? And and uh, and even if I wanted to do myself, I might not even have the confidence if I weren't building my own ledger, right? So that's that's one example, right? Um, and um, and another example is that you know if you're seeing uh, specific transaction types that are very common in your application stack. You might actually decide to say, "Hey, I don't, I don't even want to put this through the VM anymore because the VM is kind of expensive, right? Um, maybe we'll just build it into a native primitive inside the ledger itself, right? It's running on C, it's running on C code rather than like you know Solidity code that gets translated, and blah blah blah. <laughs> All right, it's just going to directly go into machine code, period, right? And so, so hey, I can hugely optimize." the speed and minimize the expense of that operation because it gets used a lot, right? So that's something that I can do if I had my own, if we were developing the ledger and we weren't developing sort of the, the, uh, the application. Another example that, that we saw was, this goes back to what you said, is that there's gonna be a massive amount of data, massive amounts of data that's actually coming up. Now, one way that you can deal with it is to use um, some sort of off-chain storage, right? That off-chain, off our chain, maybe it's, on storage somewhere else that's anchored by another chain, and you can do that. Um, but at a minimum, there needs to be some sort of a record and some sort of an automated compression mechanism on our chain, right? If we see that a specific smart contract storage, their uh, key value pair table becomes too big, right? What do we do? Well, then we need to actually start hashing and compressing the older records, right? And that process needs to be automated. All right, because uh, <laughs> because otherwise, you know, you, you run into problems. And then you can also design economics to say like, 
you know, we are a chain that's gonna that's gonna have massive amounts of data packed into it. So so maybe we could introduce economics that specifically target storage as well. So I mean, just basically off the top of my head, I could come up with like five or six reasons why we could optimize the infrastructure based on what I see in the application. And I and I haven't even talked about layer two application specific rollups or anything like that. So this goes to show that you know today. If you're serious about building a new ecosystem, you need to have expertise in the underlying infrastructure. Um, if you don't, then you're not going to be building anywhere close to sort of the best version of your product. Yeah, yeah and I also read one of the uh, articles about you guys or that you were mentioned in was that, you know, there could be a lot greater success with really focused blockchains, like purpose focused. And that got me thinking to, um, obviously I love BSC, right? Binance Smart Chain. Yeah. But you know, when, when a new game comes out, right? The, it might just like halt the network, like not actually halt <laughs> it, but the, it'll get so slow. Uh, it doesn't really get expensive, but it'll just get difficult. And, you know, and then they optimize after the fact or whatever, and they're constantly building. But, you know, I think there's, it's almost like, you know, designer store versus Walmart, right? It's yeah. different things can have their purposes, but, you know, if you want, um, you know, if you're a massive company wanting to implement major information uses, then you probably would just want to go to the chain that's designed to handle what, what you're looking to do. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's very natural that at the beginning we have something like Ethereum, which is a general purpose. Uh, it's a Turing complete general purpose blockchain built for everything, right? Um, but of course, we are also seeing the limitations, right, of something like that. If you're built for everything, then you're not really good at anything. Um, and uh, there are lots of application specific trade offs you'd be making depending on what kind of application you're serving. And as we start to verticalize, and we're seeing very specific verticalizations these days, right? Like NFTs, DeFi, um, some are specifically used for money and whatever, right? So um, different verticals require different solutions. And, uh, and, I, and that's, that's, that's from an engineering perspective and performance perspective and the user experience perspective, that just makes sense. There's another sort of more business need, I think, consideration is that what we're also seeing today is that a lot of block in a community, I think, uh, you know, on, 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 a, on a large extent is sort of following this example as well, is they're, they're constantly trying to figure out like, well, you know, how many apps do you have on your, uh, on your, on your blockchain? How many apps did you steal from Ethereum? Like, you know, like today I stole a hundred different D apps from Ethereum because, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, guess what? You know, uh, after all this stealing, all this money thrown at the problem, Guess who has by far, by orders the magnitude, largest total value locked? Ethereum, right? I mean, mm -hmm. and, the, and, and, and the reason is that despite the fact it is so slow, despite the fact it has high transaction fees, it has a massive first mover advantage. And what's even more important, it has all these ecosystems were developed organically on their, in their ecosystem. And that is a huge, huge advantage. And that is an advantage that's very difficult, if not impossible, to overcome. And I will also go one step further to argue that in the decentralized world, in the crypto world, the ethos or the spirit of things is to collaborate and not to try to kill each other, right? There are too many people out there trying to say we're Ethereum killers. Uh, not only are they not very successful at it, 
um, it's, uh, it, it, it really goes against the spirit. You should try to work with other protocols, mm-hmm. other ecosystems, right, that are doing something really well. And you should try, you should really aim to bring something new into this market, new use cases, new applications, new ways to leverage this amazing technology, rather than just trying to copy and steal what the other guy has. And by the way, everyone's fading at doing, right? So this is uh, this is a sentiment that I find to be a very classic short-term pump and dump speculative mentality that's ultimately not going to work out in the end. Um, you know, the, the right thing to do is to try to build something new, grow it on your ecosystem and work with other ecosystems, right? Like we wouldn't imagine that Terrasa is going to be like, the finance chain, Ethereum is the finance chain, right? <laughs> so we would, uh, yeah, we would, we would, uh, we would have a decentralized bridge to Ethereum uh, that would feed any and all sorts of uh, tra- financial transactions onto it. That just makes sense. It makes sense techno- technologically. It makes sense uh, from a just business perspective, and I think it follows the decentralization ethos. We are going to be a multi-chain or multi-ecosystem world, and that just I. You know, I, I think maybe three years ago, people still argue against that. Um, but today, I don't think anyone uh, is going to argue against the fact that we're going to be in a multi-chain, multi-ecosystem world. So, you know, better start thinking about what 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 new things you're going to bring to the table and uh, how you can work better with uh, with others. Yeah. Agreed. And uh, just so thinking about how, you know, this, this Teraxa ETH collaboration could work, I'm just thinking of like an example would be you know, Terexa is gathering information on, a, let's say, a real-world asset like real estate yeah. or automobiles. And then on Ethereum, there's derivatives markets where those yeah. things are being traded. Yeah. Well, you could have this, this real-time information inflow from Terexa to Ethereum kind right. of pushing that market. Yeah, exactly. I mean, everyone wins, right? They win, I win, right? Um, and uh, at the end of the day, you know, because most of the infrastructure and data collection processes and, and the people that are involved um, started on my chain. And I have specifically designed our ecosystem, our infrastructure to serve this purpose. So it runs really well, has all the right tools, best performance. Um, there's really no reason for them to like switch to a different chain, right? I mean, unless they, you know, so 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 this is this is what I mean, right? You, you know, figure out a, something new, organically grow it, um, and then work with others. <laughs> And I think that's a, I think that's a good way to end the podcast. It's, um, it's in the spirit of crypto. It's in the spirit of what you guys are building. And, and I'll say what the majority of people are building is just trying to put value into the space, right? Yeah. Well, Steven, I appreciate your time. This has been eye-opening for me thinking about just even more use cases of blockchain and crypto that I didn't think about, let's say two hours ago. <laughs> Thank you very much. This was a very enjoyable conversation, Ben. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, let's keep in touch and I'm looking forward to you guys continuing to roll out what you're building. Sounds great. Yeah, keep in touch. Yeah.